Good morning, good to be with you again. Today we're gonna to continue our series uh, called Being Human. What does it mean to be human in the eyes of God? How does God help us through his word, by his spirit, to be all that he's made us to be? And we're looking through 1 Thessalonians to see uh, Paul writing to that church and the instructions he gives them and how they work out their life in God together. So I'm gonna read 1 Thessalonians 4 and the first eight verses. Um, and I've called this sermon today, Living to Please God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know that instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God will, God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should, uh, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Father, we just ask for your help right now. Help us to understand this passage, which is full of challenges for us in the cultural backdrop of, of where we live. And we pray, help us to find what you're saying to us. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We often talk about what it means to live a godly life and we often talk about that in terms of expressing that through acts of faith, um, through serving others, through helping those in need particularly and through sharing the gospel with those around us. But Paul in this passage specifically draws our attention to holiness, which is maybe the primary response to a genuine encounter with a, and a life living uh, and rooted in God. That holiness is born out of that experience, that God comes to us as human beings, and as we encounter him, as our relationship develops with him, so holiness bubbles up within us. And this has been true uh, all the way through the Bible. This has been true, and, and this challenge of holiness is something that, uh, that men and women have had to tackle throughout the ages. Let's see how Moses dealt with this right back in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses first met God, this is what we read. Uh, Exodus 3, uh, 2 to 6. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the, saw, the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, I'm, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the Lord, the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This first encounter that Moses had with the living God is marked by what? It's marked by God's holiness. As Moses enters God's immediate presence, Moses' lack of holiness is exposed. It's obvious, my goodness, something strange is happening. He comes close, God says, it's holy here. This is different. 
from your experience. And, and so he says, take off your sandals, take off your sandals. This is a physical act of reverence and recognition that the very ground where God had manifest his holy presence was itself made holy. Now, a bit later, the next chapter of the Bible, we read this in Leviticus and chapter 19. Moses here is explaining the law of uh, of God to the people, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the other laws that go with it. Laws that were intended to make the people holy. And we, we know this and we understand this and we're given the motivation for this before Moses really starts to unpack this law to the people. And so in, in Leviticus 19, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Be holy because I am holy, says God. God is holy. We need to understand that about God. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, he meets God in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's see what happens in this very dramatic encounter. So I'm reading Isaiah 6 and the first five verses here. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another. What were they calling? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. This is Isaiah's response. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, what Moses was coming to understand, what Isaiah suddenly saw was the holiness of God. And many of these rules of the Old Testament are, are, were a painful reminder of God's holiness, of God's otherness. You see, God is not like a, a superhuman. I think sometimes we think of God a bit like that. We think, what if you know, God's probably like a really, really, like, like a Nelson Mandela with wings and a halo, or like a, you know, like a Mother Teresa, you know, just, just, just kind of glowing, uh, just a better version of us. He's not. He is holy. He is utterly other than us. And as these men and others like them encountered God in reality, their lack of holiness and God's otherness was exposed. And they were suddenly aware of God's holiness, of his glory, of his presence. And the other thing we, we realise, to enjoy God's presence and the blessings associated with his presence we need to be holy too. That was the point of that Old Testament law and the sacrificial system. If you're going to be part of God's family, you have to be holy. Um, but have you read the laws? Have you read the Ten Commandments just? And there were many more laws than just those ten. We find, and they found, we can't keep them. And do you know what? Sometimes we don't want to. And that's the reality of our human condition. God is holy. We are not. As we are attracted by the holy presence of this awesome God, we find, oh my goodness, I don't think I belong here. How can I bridge this gap? How can I fix this problem? But with this genuine dilemma comes a promise of hope. And just as we're beginning to think, how could this ever be fixed? How could this gulf ever be bridged? We find hope pours out from 
the pages of God's word. The laws and the regulations proved too much for the people. And even the system of sacrifices and offerings were insufficient to do what? To change the hearts of the people. Their hearts were not holy. That was the essence of the problem. And then in Hebrews 8, the writer describes the essence of the hope that could fix the problem. How would it be? Well, let's read Hebrews 8, 10 to 12. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new relationship with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of the land to lead them out of Egypt because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. How, how is this ever going to happen? How is this external law literally written on tablets of stone, hard, external, unyielding? How is it going to be transferred into people's hearts? How is it ever going to happen? How is it going to be moved from this external law to an inner motivation, even a joy? How is it ever going to happen? How is this way of relating to God to be achieved? And of course, we know, we know the answer. It's, it's Jesus. Jesus bridges the gap, fixes what was broken, replaces what was lost, draws us into the very life of God. And in regard to holiness, our lack of it, our, our attraction to it, our inability to achieve it, what does Jesus do? Simply, he gives us his holiness, his righteousness. He says, you, you could never achieve it with all your efforts and with all those centuries of trying. You never got close, so I will give you mine. But he does more than this. He does more than that. He mends, as we said, our brokenness, our separateness, which had rendered us deeply attracted to holiness, but incapable at the same time of achieving it. He puts holiness within us. How? By his Holy Spirit, changing our hearts from stone to hearts of flesh. He puts that, that love for goodness and righteousness inside as a motivation, as a joy, rather than trying forcing it in through external laws. And actually, it's, it's one of the signs of becoming a Christian. It, it is just that. It's that, that previously absent and now increasingly prominent desire for holiness. This external law is now a living relationship. You see, knowing Jesus isn't a replacement for holiness. Sometimes we get that wrong. We think, well, hasn't Jesus forgiven me? Therefore, I don't need to be holy. No, it's not a replacement for holiness. Knowing Jesus is the embodiment of holiness. Access to the Holy One himself. To be part of God's holy family. A child, as it were, of holiness. Let me tell you a story. A few years ago, we had the absolute joy of being invited to court as the final part of the adoption process was being enacted. And as we spilled out of the courtroom, um, we began to celebrate. Uh, two things were true of this precious child who'd been adopted. Firstly, they were in every way part of the new family. The adoption process had ended. 
It was over. That, it was done. The, the, literally, the judge had decreed, you are part of this new family. That was true. Secondly, what was also true was that the practical process of becoming a child of the new parents had begun. And learning what it meant to have a new name, to have a new home, to enjoy a, the security that had been missing, to, to be part of that family. That was the process that had begun. Those two things were both true at the same time. Yes, part of a new family, a new name, a new identity, absolutely. But also the beginning of a process of becoming part of that family at the same time. Have you noticed that when a fairy tale ends with a romantic couple riding off, you know, they, they find each other, the impossible odds uh, are kind of overcome and they ride off together into the sunset. Have you noticed that that's how fairy tales end? And there's always the question, isn't there? Yeah, but what happened next? What happens if he snores? What happens if they don't get on? You know, what happens the next morning? What happens a year later, 10 years later? And of course, the Bible is no fairy tale. And it therefore deals with the what next. It deals with that process of becoming, of becoming more together. Of what does it look like? What's the reality of being forgiven and adopted? Having the spirit live within us knowing the joy of forgiveness and belonging. Now, all that is true, and now we have to learn to live like it's true. Now, there's a, a kind of theological term, a fancy term that we use when we talk about this process, and that fancy term is called sanctification. And the Bible talks about sanctification. Paul talked about it in that passage. Sanctification is the process of living like we've been adopted by a holy God. It's what it, what it practically looks like to be part of this new holy family and that's what sanctification is that's the process that we go through after after we say yes god come and forgive me i want to be part of your family yes i'm now in in that moment i'm adopted now i've got to learn to live like i'm in and so we come to paul's point and so we come to the issue of sex one of the things about being part of this new holy family that we've been adopted into is that our attitudes towards other people and to people, particularly in God's family, has, has changed. Before we were believers, our understanding could have come from all sorts of places, but maybe our understanding was that we were not that much different from the animals. Um, the punchline to an Observer art article uh, from 2014 was this. You there, reading the Observer, you are just a clever ape. Get over yourself. That was Alice Roberts in, in, in 2014. Well, the Bible disagrees strongly with that summary of who we are the bible says no you're not just a clever ape you are unlike the other animals you're made in god's image made for relationship and not just reproduction this means humanity is special actually sacred everything about you carries this image bearing potential everything ranging from your acts of kindness to how you use your time how you behave towards your unfair boss to what you do in bed your sexuality is sacred and holy like everything else about you because you're part of a holy family. Now listen, realising that your unjust boss is made in the image of God doesn't justify his bad behaviour, but it does help you to pray for him and seek his good and, and seek his salvation rather than hoping he gets struck by lightning. It changes our attitude. And realising that your sexuality is sacred uh, and realising that that's true for those around me, it changes those behaviours too, and so it should. So here's the question. 
What is, what's holy sex and what is sacred sex? Well, Jesus explains this unambiguously in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees, as usual, are trying to trick him. And this is what they say in verse 3. So Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and marry uh, for any other reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So there will no longer be two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You might have heard that at wedding ceremonies. Now, Jesus here is being asked about divorce specifically, but as he often does, he answers the question behind the question. In other words, what can I do? What's legal in God's eyes? What can, you know, if God is so great, then what can I do? What can I get away with? Now, this is the same problem that Thessalonians face. Their issue wasn't, wasn't divorce, but their issue was unrestrained or barely restrained sexual activity of all kinds. This was the world they were inhabited, the world they were born into, the, the world they were born again and saved out of. Their world, this Roman Empire, was just full of the powerful sexually taking advantage of the weak, of often men taking advantage of women and others, of those in authority lording it over and, and just doing whatever they liked pretty much with those around them. And Paul is saying that's not how God's people, God's holy family behaves. You're now part of something that is not behaving like that. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes behavior and he, and he kind of ramps it up because Jesus said, he said, look, you've heard it said, don't, you know, don't commit adultery. He says, I'm telling you, don't even look lustfully. Don't even harbor those thoughts in your heart. And suddenly we're thinking, oh my goodness, not to even think that way. Sam Albury in his fantastic book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? He puts it like this. Think about what Jesus is saying about women. She is not to be looked at lustfully. Jesus is saying that her sexuality is precious and valuable, that she has a sexual integrity to her, which matters and should be honored by everyone else. He is saying that this sexual integrity is so precious that it must not be violated even in the privacy of somebody else's mind, even if she will never find out about it. Jesus elevates sexuality within his holy family way beyond just activity. He's saying this is holy and precious because you are a holy and precious child of the living God. This is holiness. And God's saying that's true for you now. You're part of that family. And so Paul's appeal to the Thessalonians, his appeal to us is to live in the good of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, that we live sanctified lives with regards to sex, that we don't just reflect the culture around us. These Thessalonians would have to fight that they wouldn't reflect this pervasive, almost anything goes sexual activity around them. Why? Because they were God's holy people to enjoy the presence of God, to wonder at being adopted into his family. And as we look at one another, we need to remember these two things. Remember who you are. You're made in God's image. You're precious in his sight. Remember who you belong to, who they belong to, those around us. Part of his holy family. Drawn in, 
given God's own holiness as your own. And this will remain not just reflecting the ethics of the society and culture around us, but instead reflecting God himself. And that is Paul's appeal. And that's the challenge for us. Now, this is hard because our culture around us is not very unlike those Thessalonians' culture around them. It's an anything goes or almost anything goes culture around us with regards to sex. And do you know what? It is chaos out there. No one knows how to behave. You read any headline on any day and you'll find we do not know how to deal with this powerful thing called sex. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, it's a gift. Yes, God invented it. He's for it. There's a whole book in the Bible that describes that kind of sexual activity between lovers. It's, it's a wonderful, godly, God-given thing, but it's too powerful to just run wild. Like a fire is, is wonderful in a fireplace. But set a fire in the, in the living room outside of the boundaries of that fireplace and burn the place down. And look at our culture if you're wondering about the truth of that illustration. And so God is asking us to live sanctified, holy lives with regards to sex as God's holy people. Father, we ask, would you help us? We need your help. Ask right across the church, everyone listening, to this as we hear these things and think how could that possibly be we would remember that you have adopted us into your family you've made us part of this wonderful holy family of god and you've put your holy spirit in us and that you're going to help us to live out the life of god amen so we're going to take communion together and as we do this we're remembering that we're part of his family that he's part of us he's given himself to us that he's given us what his holy spirit and this is the access to god that we have through jesus by the holy spirit to the father and so we take the bread and we break it and we remember god has given us himself he's given us his body this is a reminder that god it's not just a it's not just a mental a cerebral exercise being a christian it's about our bodies too it was about Jesus' body that he gave on the cross for us. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself to us, body and soul. Thank you that you didn't reject the cross because of its pain, because physically it was difficult, but you went through with it so that we would know the Father. And we thank you for this, Jesus. And and of course, we take wine and we drink it. We remember this shed blood. Remember, this is cleansing from sin. The importance of that in our lives, we, we know because we mess up. And even as I've been preaching today, you might be thinking, oh, my goodness, I've not lived a holy life and a pure life with regards to sex. Well, this is our answer. This, as we come to God, is our forgiveness. He cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of that. And we receive your forgiveness, whether it's in thought or deed, we receive your forgiveness. Even as we drink this wine, we remind ourselves that you are a forgiving God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness of sin. 
Thank you for a cleansing. Thank you for wiping the slate clean. Thank you for new starts. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is the God that we serve. A God of the new beginning of the wiping clean from sin. And we thank you that each of us now that knows you stands clean before you, not because of our activity or inactivity, but because of your shed blood. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.